Hello and welcome to One Real Good Thing, where we dive into one thing you can do today to propel your life in a healthy direction. I'm your host, Ellie Krieger, and boy, do I have a treat for you today. My guest is the stir-fry guru herself, Grace Young. There is no one better to give us insights into how to level up for a better and better for you stir-fry. In this episode, she shares her game-changing tips and tricks. Grace Young is an award-winning cookbook author, culinary historian, and filmmaker. She has a long list of accolades. She's a Forbes 50 over 50 honoree, is the recipient of the Julia Child Award, the James Beard Foundation's Humanitarian of the Year Award, and is a USA Today Women of the Year honoree for her work to save America's Chinatowns. She has devoted her career to celebrating healthy wok cookery. She won James Beard Awards for her Walk Therapist comedy video and cookbook, Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge. Please welcome Grace Young. Grace Young, thank you so much for joining us. It is absolutely a delight to have you here. Oh, I'm so happy to be able to have this conversation with you. I have admired you for so long, and I'm just thrilled to introduce you to my listeners if they don't know about you already. But as a means of introduction, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you actually came to be known as the stir fry guru, which you absolutely are. Wow. Um, so um, my culinary career began when I was a child and I saw Julia Child on TV. And that's how I got hooked on wanting to cook. Um, my parents, I come from a uh, Cantonese background. My parents uh, were incredible home cooks, and they basically replicated uh, the same uh, Cantonese meals that they had eaten in China. So I grew up with a great love and respect for Chinese cooking, but I loved exploring everything that wasn't Chinese. And uh, in my 20s, I got this great job as a test kitchen director for Time Life Cookbooks. And I did like over 40 cookbooks for them. I ran the test kitchen and the food photography studios. Um, and then in my 30s, I realized that I had taken my Cantonese culinary background for granted. And so I started flying home to San Francisco to cook with my parents and aunties and uncles. Um, and family friends. And that was a very important time for me because I got, not only did I record um, the recipes I'd grown up with, but I got our family family's culinary history. And that was the start of my own personal cookbook writing. I've written the breath of, uh, my first book was The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen. That was the memoir cookbook. Then I wrote The Breath of a Walk and um, finally stir-frying to the sky's edge. And when stir-frying to the sky's edge came out, the New York Times dubbed me the stir-fry guru. And it stuck for sure. I'm holding that book in my hand now. And it is, for me, I feel like it's a treasure. This book is an absolute treasure. It's so clearly written, so um, comprehensive, but not overwhelming feeling. Like you really break it down. So you're a really great teacher. It's so interesting that you say that you turned away at first from 
your Chinese heritage, the heritage of your Chinese cooking. I feel like so many chefs and culinary creators that I've spoken with on this podcast have that same journey in some way of essentially turning away from their heritage, what they grew up with, the foods they grew up with, and then really finding their voice when they turn back to it. So I, I think it's a common thread in this, that there's some path there. So that's super interesting to me. Um, but you have been helping people for so long really level up their stir fries. And that's what we're talking about today. That's your one real good thing is level up your stir fry. And I think, well, I, I guess I want to ask you first, what do you think are some common misconceptions about stir frying? First of all, I think there are so many bad stir fry recipes in magazines, newspapers, on the internet, in cookbooks. And it's no wonder people are really frustrated that when they stir fry, the results turn out um, bad. What and makes them bad? What is bad about them typically? So first of all, uh, there are so many recipes that call for using a nonstick pan, whether it's a skillet or a nonstick wok. And I think a lot of people call a recipe that just has bite-sized ingredients and some soy sauce in it and some ginger a stir fry. And there's more to a stir fry than that. And it begins with using the proper pan. Um, you can buy woks that are round bottom, which is the traditional wok. You can buy woks that are made of nonstick material, which belong in the garbage. <laughs> you can buy them, but you, you throw them away right away. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, you can buy anodized aluminum, stainless steel, uh, American-made cast iron, and all of them are not the best pan for stir-frying at home. The best wok for the home cook is a 14-inch flat-bottom carbon steel wok. And as I said, the traditional wok is round bottom, but on an American stove, and especially these days with so many people having ceramic glass top and induction or the old-fashioned electric coil, you cannot get a round bottom wok hot enough using those styles of, of uh, stoves. But even if you have a gas stove, um, an ordinary residential gas stove can't get a round bottom wok hot enough. Because first of all, when you use a round bottom wok, they sell it to you with a wok ring because it has to be stabilized. If it's round bottom, it's going to be wobbling on your burner. So you need to set it on a walk ring. And the moment you set it on the walk ring, it lifts it from the heat. And that's right. why it can't get hot enough. So you, it needs to be flat bottom. So the, the surface of the, the bottom of the walk is sitting directly on the burner. And that's how you can get it sufficiently hot. So one of the keys to a good stir fry, you're saying, is making sure that pan is sufficiently hot. And I'm just going to repeat this for those in the back. The best wok, according to Grace Young, is to is for the home cook in the USA, is a 14-inch flat bottom carbon steel wok. Um, but you also say in your book, and I think maybe some people, maybe they're not ready to go out and buy a wok. Maybe they're just starting to think about stir frying. In your book, you also say that a skillet is also okay. And again, not nonstick, but a skillet is also okay. Do you still um, 
think yes. that's yes, like a 12 inch stainless steel skillet would be fine. Again, never nonstick. And let me just explain why nonstick is so bad. Most nonstick pans are not intended for high heat cooking. The manufacturer instructions actually will say at the most medium high. Stir frying is generally always done on high heat. The other thing that always happens when you're stir frying is that you should preheat the pan first with nothing in it. The Chinese call that hot wok cold oil. You get the wok hot and then you add the oil. If you start a cold pan, add oil and then heat it, you will definitely have your beef, chicken, seafood, rice and noodles sticking in the wok. So you must preheat the pan first. And when you're cooking with a carbon steel wok, it is like cooking with a cast iron skillet in a way, because the more you cook with it, the more the pan acquires a natural nonstick surface. Yes. And yes. And I love, I just watched your wok therapist video because this kind of taps into this. And it's just fabulous. You guys have to check out, just Google walk therapist on YouTube and you'll see Grace Young's video. It's four, less than four minutes and it's fabulous. It's really, it's helping people get through the trauma <laughs> of their concerns about their walk and seasoning it properly. And actually you make it so easy. And my takeaway from the whole thing is just cooking it. Yes. Just cooking it. That's all it really wants you to do. And it's going to take on the character of, of that use, essentially. So um, that is one of the obstacles for getting people to stir fry is people are intimidated about seasoning a wok. But it's actually super, super simple. Um, but the, the main problem is when you start with the brand new carbon steel wok and you scrub it with liquid detergent, and then, um, you know, you, you wash off the factory oil. And then when you start cooking with it, the pan turns color, and it actually looks like you made a mistake. Some pans turn orange, some turn yellow, some turn almost like a dark blue or even black. And it, it looks like, a, like, like you've ruined the pan. So unlike cast iron, which starts off gray colored, a light gray. And the more you cook with it, the gray just intensifies and darkens and then eventually becomes black. So I think that people get really thrown by the fact that the carbon steel pan turns all these weird colors. <clears throat> Sorry, I have this little um, slightly raspy voice today. Um, but the main thing is as you're cooking with a wok, a brand new wok, it looks funny in the beginning. And I actually call it wok acne. You know, <laughs> it, it looks like, and it's it's like it's going through its teenage years, uh, the first year that you're cooking with it. But as you said, the most important thing is to just keep cooking with the wok. And as you do, each time you're doing something like stir frying or pan frying or deep fat frying, the oil is literally burning into the metal and it, it's creating what I call ancient nonstick cookware. Indeed it is actually. Um, and I, so I think 
as you started to talk about some common misconceptions about stir frying. So um, making sure that the pan is super hot, right? Um, being a creating a scenario using the right pan, using a hot wok with cold oil. Um, you're getting at this next question of mine, but I wanted to make sure it's addressed. What is the difference between sauteing and stir frying? Because I think, I, and I probably made this mistake initially as I was creating recipes. I, you know, we live and we learn, right? But I'm sure that I put out recipes that were really sautés that I called stir fries, as you say, because I put some soy sauce and ginger in it. But what is the difference between sautéing and stir frying? So sauté is a French term, and it literally means to jump. And uh, it's generally done on medium-high heat. And the ingredients have been cut into bite-sized pieces, and you are sautéing with either olive oil or a combination of olive oil and butter. And, and the reason why uh, they use the word jump is because as you're moving the pieces, they're literally jumping in the pan. That's the visual. Um, in contrast, in stir frying, you're cooking on high heat. You would never, ever use olive oil or butter because it would begin smoking. And so um, the oil or the fat that is used for stir frying is always um, an oil with a high smoking point. So the traditional oil is peanut, but these days many people use grapeseed, avocado, even rice bran oil, safflower. If you're using something like olive oil or sesame oil, which both have low smoking points, by the time you've preheated your pan and add your oil, the oil is going to start smoking wildly. And when you see that smoking, it actually means you've destroyed your oil. It means that the chemical structure of the oil has been broken down, and that's why it's smoking. And you should actually stop, cool down your pan, uh, wipe out all that fat with paper towels, carefully once the pan is cooled so that you don't burn your hand and then wash the, the pan and start all over again. Yeah. That's uh, the byproduct of that burnt oil is also free radicals that are bad for your health. Um, and, and I would really love to tap into this health aspect as well, because I think a, a misconception is that many people don't realize, or they think that stir frying is unhealthy, but I think most people don't realize how incredibly healthful stir frying is um, for so many reasons. I mean, I'm going to name a couple right now. Um, first of all, it's so very vegetable based and meat I find is used more as a condiment or a seasoning in small amounts. So you're getting maybe a couple ounces of meat per person, if that, but it's very vegetable focused. Um, so that's one. I mean, we're all striving for that, right? New year, launching into this year. More vegetables is probably one of the one of the best, if not the best thing you can do for yourself. Exactly. I mean, so often in Western cooking, uh, each person gets a whole chicken breast or a big steak, right? And sometimes that's eight ounces of chicken or eight to 12 ounces of a steak. But in contrast, as you're saying, uh, in a stir fry, the emphasis is on vegetables, 
And the meat is generally no more than about four ounces of the raw that, you know, before, before you cook with it. Um, so in, in stir frying with chicken, pork, shrimp, um, what else? Um, scallops, no more than one pound. And what's really curious is when you try to stir fry more than 12 ounces of beef in a 14 inch wok, it won't work. It actually goes gray and foamy. So I always say that um, your wok knows that you should be cutting back on your saturated fat. <laughs> that's funny. That That's funny. I've um, tried testing 13 ounces of beef. It won't work. It just goes great. You know how when you make a stew and if you crowd the pan too much, the, the meat just starts bubbling and it never browns. That's what happens when you try to stir fry more than 12 ounces of beef. That's so interesting. Also, I think people don't realize that. So with stir frying, you're cooking with oil, but it's not a lot of oil typically, right? I mean, you can deep fry in a wok, but we're talking about stir frying here. And, um, and specifically, which I'll get into in a minute, which you say in your book, like a simple stir fry, which is really geared for the home cook, because there's so many different types of stir frying, as you as you explain. But I think here, we're really focusing on what you call the simple stir fry, right? So it's oil, not a lot of oil. Um, but some oil actually helps us absorb the nutrients, the fat soluble nutrients in our food. So some is good, but not really having it be an oily thing is also good. And the other thing is because in stir frying, the vegetables are cooking quickly and without a lot of liquid, without a lot of water involved, that means you retain a lot of the inherent nutrients in the vegetables. So not only are you eating more vegetables, but you're getting more out of them. So that's really, there's really like a one-two punch there in terms of the nutrition. And as you said, um, there's very little fat but people don't realize how little the fat is. There are recipes, many of my vegetable stir fries call for one tablespoon of oil for four servings. And most of the entree stir fries call for two tablespoons of oil, which breaks down to one and a half teaspoons of oil per person. I mean, that's really unheard of, right? And so um, for years, I actually did a stir fry guru series for Weight Watchers because stir frying is so healthy and it matched up with the Weight Watchers criteria for healthy eating, which is lots of vegetables, minimal meat protein, and very little fat. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and so let's talk for a minute about what you talk about as a simple stir fry, because I do think people think that maybe stir fries are complicated or difficult. So you, how do you define this simple stir fry versus other types? So a simple stir fry is when you just, a simple stir fry is what you see when you go to Asia and you see a stir fry being cooked from a street vendor. So they don't have an elaborate setup they heat the wok, they add their oil, they always swirl it in, and then they add aromatics. And the aromatics could be ginger, it could be garlic, it could be shallots. And then you let that stir fry for just a few seconds until it's fragrant. Um, 
And then if it's a vegetable stir fry, then you're adding baby bok choy or you're adding, um, you know, any kind of Chinese green, Chinese broccoli, Chinese yellow choy. Um, and then you're adding your seasonings. It can be a pinch of salt and sugar. And then generally there are some seasonings that you mix up uh, on the side, which is a little soy sauce. Uh, a little rice wine or dry sherry. Sometimes people add a little broth. Sometimes people add a touch of sesame oil. And then you just, first you stir fry the vegetables for another minute until they turn bright green. And then you swirl in the sauce ingredients. And within one to two minutes at the most, the vegetable is done. Yeah, That's and I- the simplest stir fry. And and then you can kind of build on that, of course. But I think that base of the simplest stir fry is maybe how most home cooks in China even are doing things when, you know, it doesn't, maybe some celebration meals certainly are more elaborate, but on the day-to-day basis, this is the basic food of the people, right? Yes. Yes. I did want to just clarify one thing, and that is we talked very briefly about preheating a wok. And people think that uh, a lot of people have the misconception that you can't stir fry at home because a home stove can't get as hot as a restaurant stove. And they've heard about these Chinese restaurant stoves that have like 100,000 BTUs, 150,000 BTUs. So so they want to get their walk as hot as possible. And that can actually be very, very dangerous. So I came up with a method for how to judge whether or not your walk is hot enough because you might have a wolf or Viking range and I have an ordinary New York City apartment stove and somebody else has induction. In the old days, maybe 50 years ago, everybody had the same GE stove, right? But nowadays, the range of possibilities is so huge. So I say that you preheat the walk on high heat And then you start flicking a drop of water into the wok. And when the wok evaporates that drop of water within one second, then you're ready to go. And keep an eye on on it to make sure it doesn't burn. (laughs) Yeah. So on a wolf or biking range, maybe you preheat your wok like five seconds, 10 seconds, and it's ready. But on a New York City apartment stove, you might have to preheat your wok four minutes. You know, all of these stoves range in power. So you just keep on flicking that drop of water until the moment the water evaporates within one second, then you know you're ready to go. And sometimes, excuse me, sometimes um, when you flick that drop of water, there's two or three drops of water that land in the wok. Make sure that they've all dried up before you swirl in your oil. Because if there's still a drop of water in the pan that you didn't see, when that oil hits that hot wok, it's going to spatter back at you. So be very careful that you're not putting too much water into your wok. Great. So heat your wok without the oil, check it with the water, make sure the water's evaporated, then 
add your oil, swirl in your oil and get cooking. And the thing is, one of the things I love about stir fries is that they really move fast. Like once you start cooking, like dinner's on the table in like 15 minutes maximum. But I think one of the things key to that for me, and I, I don't know if you agree, is that everything really needs to be prepped and ready. You can't be, you don't, you're not going to have time to be scrambling at the last minute, whisking things together or chopping or whatever. Everything really needs to be kind of set up in front of you. And you need to arrange all of those ingredients in the order that you're going to use them. And uh, it's not a time to do a selfie or a video for your Instagram posts. Uh, this requires your full attention. You're cooking on high heat, which is really dangerous. And a really great tip is to cook with a partner, right? Who is actually reading you the instructions for the recipe when you're new to stir frying. Once you get accustomed to it, you don't need that. But in the very beginning, it's not a bad idea to have a stir fry buddy who is just calling out the instruction and then you've already lined up your ingredients according to the order that you're going to use them. And so it's a no-brainer just adding it, oh, okay, stir fry until you know, the greens turn bright green. Right. And that's super fun to have someone there too. And then they could film you if you need that too. Yes, they can always exactly. be. <laughs> um, so speaking of the vegetables, um, you, you have a really beautiful um, breakout session in your book about essentials for stir frying vegetables and tofu. And one of them is to categorize and then stir fry. And I do think this is so important because different vegetables, you, you categorize vegetables as hard, medium, hard, uh, and soft and leafy. And I think it's really important to understand the different textures of the vegetables because that is going to tell you if you need to par cook them, how thin to cut them. And that that type of thing is important when you're like, let's say you get a box of, if you're following a recipe, it's probably already clear in there, but let's say you're winging it. You have a box of vegetables that just came from your CSA or whatever, or you have whatever <laughs> in their fridge, understanding how hard something is and whether you, whether you need to par cook it and so on is really key to a successful stir fry as well. Yeah. So this is, this becomes really critical when you want to do a mixture of vegetables if you're just stir frying baby bok choy, then everything's going to cook in the same amount of time. But if you want to cook a stir fry that has carrots and broccoli, which are which I categorize as hard vegetables, and pair them with some bell peppers and asparagus, that's medium hard. And at the very end, you want to add some bean sprouts, or you want to add a little bit of baby bok choy, which I categorize as soft leafy. You would put the hard vegetables into the wok first and stir fry that for about a minute and then add the medium hard and, and stir fry that for an additional minute. And then finally, you're adding the soft leafy because it they, the soft leafy vegetables require the least amount of stir fry time. And so that's how you are able to manage cooking three different um, styles or or textures of vegetables in one walk at the same time. But the other way around that is when you're cooking hard vegetables like carrots, broccoli, cauliflower, um, parsnips, you could cut them paper thin 
so that they cook in the same amount and add them at the same amount of time. I'm sorry, and add them with the medium hard vegetables so that they would cook in the same amount of time. Or you could cook, you could, um, you could use the hard vegetables and cut them into thicker slices, but blanch them for one minute. And that would drop the time again so that you could add them at the same time as you add the medium hard. So there's a number of different ways you can play with it. But the most important thing is just to be conscious of looking at your vegetables for their um, texture and to group them by whether it's hard, medium hard, soft and leafy. Yeah, and actually if you're using frozen vegetables, that would that they're already par cooked so you can actually put those probably with the medium like a like a frozen broccoli would be would work with the medium hard as well even yeah. though maybe normally harder vegetables so um fresh is great to use but sometimes you know what you got it in the freezer and you can make a meal happen really fast with that whatever's at your fingertips then that's terrific too so i never I never snub my nose at frozen vegetables. <laughs> and um, I love for um, fried rice, I love adding frozen peas and corn. But yes, I always prefer uh, fresh. And one of the keys for stir frying is using seasonal ingredients. That if you're trying to stir fry asparagus in December, it's the high heat and the quick cooking that actually um, makes stir frying so magical because that high heat and quick cooking accentuates the natural flavor of your ingredient and the texture. But if you're cooking out of season, if you're cooking asparagus in you know, November, December, January, February, uh, it's woody, there's no sweetness. So you should actually be going to your farmer's market or your supermarket and whatever vegetable is the least expensive is probably because it's in season. Like right now, I see asparagus in my supermarket for $8 a pound. It's coming from Mexico or Peru, right? And it has no flavor, but it costs more money. But this time of year, like uh, in, the, in the winter, um, broccoli is fantastic. Chinese broccoli, that all the Asian greens are really at their peak at this time. Oh, interesting. Um, so you started to talk a little bit when you're talking about adding a sauce to the initial stir fry, right? To the initial vegetables. I think one of the things is oftentimes the sauces we get in restaurants are oftentimes kind of rich, right? They're maybe more heavy than you need to do at home because maybe they're more like special occasion type foods, right? So at home, how do you build a stir fry sauce that's not essentially also very high in sodium? So lots of flavor with maybe a little bit less sodium, I think is important for a lot of people as well. I think this issue of sodium is really critical. And um, most people don't realize, but soy sauce is it can be extremely high in sodium. Um, one of my favorite soy sauces is made by a company called Jungba from Sichuan province. And the sodium, I think, is close to 1,200 milligrams for a tablespoon. And so 
Nowadays, I actually prefer cooking with reduced sodium soy sauce. And the most common one is, of course, Kikoman. You know, it's widely available in supermarkets. And I used it for years, but um, I've, I've never really liked the flavor. I feel like it has a really chemical taste to it. And I've discovered three different brands in recent years where the, the soy sauce is naturally fermented, which is what you want, and the sodium levels are really excellent. Uh, one is called Yamasa, Y-A-M-A-S-A, and they call their soy sauce less salt soy sauce, and it's only 520 milligrams. So tablespoon. less than half of what most soy sauces are. There's another one that comes from uh, Taiwan, and it's called Kimlan, like the woman's name Kim, K-I-M-L-A-N, and a tablespoon is only 506 milligrams. And finally, there's one called Wan Jia Shan, uh, three words, W-A-N-J-A-S-H-A-N, and theirs is called a less sodium soy sauce, and that's 685 milligrams. But the other uh, ingredients that people often put into sauces are oyster sauce, and that can be super high in, um, in sodium. Um, there is a brand that's the most popular called Lee Kum Ki, and a tablespoon is 820 milligrams. I am preferring these days a brand that comes out of Thailand called Mega Chef, and that's only 690 milligrams. And another key is try to avoid using fish sauce. Fish sauce, the sodium levels are off the charts. A typical tablespoon of uh, fish sauce made by Red Boat is 1,490 milligrams. That's 1,500 milligrams for just right. a tablespoon. Well, that's about the equivalent of a half a teaspoon of table salt. So I think what's really critical is that it's okay to use these, even if you're using the full sodium version, just to think of them as adding salt. You need to understand that you're essentially adding salt right there and going for a lower sodium product that tastes good as the ones you suggested, which I absolutely wrote down and I will absolutely be checking out. So thank you for that insider tip. Um, going for a lower sodium option is a great way to get the flavor without going overboard on the sodium. Right. And that recipe that I uh, spoke about earlier about when you're stir frying like baby bok choy, um, and I mentioned, you know, add a little chicken broth to the sauce. Well, of course, homemade is the best, right? And then if you're using canned or carton chicken broth, they you can buy reduced sodium um, um, canned chicken broth, but the homemade has so much more flavor and you can control the amount of sodium you're adding. Right. Yeah. I, that's, I have often said that's like really the chef's secret ingredient is homemade stocks, but it's not always really feasible for a home cook on a day-to-day -day basis. So absolutely the lower sodium broth options are the way to go. I think with any type of packaged food, really, choosing lowest, lower sodium is ideal. And then if you find that it tastes flat, you can find other ways to amp it up. You can put more ginger in it. You can put a little bit more vinegar. You can um, 
uh, try different things like that, maybe some chili peppers even. And then if it really needs it, then add a little bit of salt, but at least you're starting off with less and you can be in control of how much goes into it in the end. Yes. Um, the other tip is uh, we were talking about stir frying vegetables before, and I didn't mention to you one of the biggest tips is make sure your vegetables are dry. A lot of people I've actually seen in stir fry recipes, you know, make sure there's water still clinging on the spinach or the bo baby bok choy. You do not want that at all. Because if you do that, you've heated up your wok, you've swirled in your oil, added your aromatics, and then you add these sopping wet vegetables to your wok and you hear this, you know, crash, cr crackling sound and then the sound dies. Because what you've done is you've actually turned your stir fry into a braise. So um, when you're talking about your sauce ingredients, in addition to turning your stir fry into a braise, when you add wet vegetables, you're diluting the flavor of your sauce ingredients because you've, you've added all this excess, excess water. So, so you're, you're, so this is gr such great advice. I love these inside tips. Thank you so much. I know they're going to really help. Um, so you're saying to add your vegetable dry, get it coated in the oil, get it stir fried, and then you add your wet ingredients, your sauce after that, after it's all kind of has the, the heat from the wok that touched it. Yes. And um, when I say your vegetables should be dry, when I was a child, my mother would wash the vegetables in the morning put them in the colander, and then she would go off to work. And so in a way, when she came home at night, maybe some of the vegetables were a little limp. You know, I wasn't really paying attention as a child, but I always remember that's the way she did it. I always advise my um, readers to actually just use a salad spinner that I cut off the ends of the baby bok choy. I put all the, you know, I separate all the stalks. I put them into the salad spinner, add water, swish it around, several changes of water. And then I actually spin them in the salad spinner until they're dry to the touch. And if you don't have a salad spinner, then swish them in water, put them in a colander, shake them, and then put them in a kitchen towel, wrap them in a kitchen towel to, to remove all that excess water. Absolutely. And if you don't have a ki kitchen uh, and a salad spinner, you really should get one because honestly, even just making a salad to then have like wet greens and make your salad dressing and put it in with that, it just dilutes the flavor completely. So get a salad spinner. It's not a huge investment. Um, so great. So before we really wrap up, these tips have just been fantastic. I really wanted to ask you about your work supporting Chinatowns and local Chinese restaurants, because I have been so inspired by this. I grew up going to Chinatown in New York. It was a regular part of my life. I have so many fantastic Chinese restaurants in my neighborhood, and I'm just really now learning about the differences between my Cantonese restaurant and my Sichuan restaurant and my Hunan restaurant and how the food differs. And it's just such a glorious exploration. And these are like family-run operations. And you are really... Um, a huge advocate of this. What's what's going on with Chinatowns? Why do they need so much support at this point? So since the start of the pandemic, um, Chinatowns across this country 
from Honolulu to New York City have been struggling. And uh, at the start of the begin at the start of the pandemic, uh, people were afraid to come to Chinatown because they because of misinformation, they thought that if they came to Chinatown, they could catch COVID. But there were, in fact, no incidents of COVID in Chinatown. Um, but now, uh, so many years after the start of the pandemic, Chinatowns continue to struggle. And it's because they're all made up of mom and pop businesses. Um, and mom and pop used to be the backbone of this country. But partially because of the pandemic, People have gotten so accustomed to scrolling and clicking and getting a package the next day. Or there are so many big box stores that you can go to to buy everything. And um, so these little mom and pop businesses have so many more struggles that, you know, so many more struggles competing against the big box and the Internet businesses. And um when you're in Chinatown, it's so important to support not just the restaurants, but the markets, the bakeries, and the stores. And so many of them are immigrant-owned. So many of the owners have similar stories that they came to this country with nothing, worked hard, saved their money, started their business. And um, you feel the heart and soul of these businesses when you go to Chinatown. And in New York City, we lost 150 businesses during the pandemic. And so many of them were legacy businesses, which are, you know, they were 40, 50s. There was one restaurant that was 75 years old. 150 and just in Chinatown, just to clarify, just in, in Chinatown. Yeah. And so in, in the last year, two years, I've seen um, new bubble tea shops appear, soft serve ice cream, uh, espresso shops. Uh, what else have we gotten? Pizza, burgers. And I know Chinatown needs to evolve and it needs new blood. But if this trend continues and we lose all the old businesses, soon our Chinatown will be like New York City's Little Italy, which is really a shadow of its former self. It used to be a vibrant Italian American community. And now there's only one store, Di Paolo, that's left. All the other stores are really just sort of like tourist Italian restaurants. And so I want to preserve the culture and the history of Chinatown. And that means everyone needs to show up, but not just in New York City's Chinatown, San Francisco, Oakland, Honolulu, Boston, Philly, Seattle, they're all hurting. And without our showing up, they will not survive. And you know what? It's such a joyous thing to do, to go to Chinatown and experience a meal and to go into the shops and to and to to buy these ingredients that you mentioned that, you know, sure, you can get them online in a box or whatever, but it's so much more fun to go and and have the experience of being in the store. Yeah, in fact, um, I had mentioned earlier that I love the 14 inch flat bottom carbon steel wall. There's a great store in New York City's Chinatown called KK Discount, K as in kangaroo. And, um, and they sell online. And that business has been around for over 30 years. 
And there's a wonderful uh, family-owned supermarket that's um, multi-generational uh, called Po Wing Hong, P-O-W-I-N-G-H-O-N-G. And you can buy every kind of um, Chinese staple for your pantry from Po Wing Hong. So this Kim Lan uh, soy sauce that, was, that I mentioned before that's uh, reduced sodium, you can buy it online from Poing Hong. But if you're in New York City, stop by. Oh, put it on your list for sure. I, I have now a beautiful running list of places to go in Chinatown here in New York and things to buy. So I'm so excited for that. And thank you so much for these wonderful stir fry tips. I know mine, the stir fries I make will definitely be better because of it. And it's such a great, healthful way to cook that I hope people are really inspired to do that. I didn't know if you wanted to add anything else before we wrap up here. Um, let me just think if there was anything else I wanted to mention. Well, do uh -huh. mention your website for sure, because I would love for people to know where to find out more about you and, and get access to your books <laughs> and your videos and all of your good stuff. Um, my website is actually down a little down right now. It just has my bio, but uh, we're we're just uh, tweaking it, and it should be back up soon. Um, I think it's just that I want people to uh, experience the joys of stir frying because it's a life changer. It's so simple, and it's so easy and doable, and. Um, so many people I know say, tell me that they just feel so much healthier um, adding stir fries to their uh, lifestyle. So um, it's, it's not difficult at all. And the carbon steel walk costs $35 and it will last you more than a lifetime. So it's such a fun way to cook a delicious way to eat, and it's so good for you. Well, that sums it up perfectly. Thank you so much, Grace Young, for joining us. It's been just delightful to have you on. Thank you so much, Ellie. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're inspired to break out your walker skillet and level up your stir fry. I know I am. Join me next time for another One Real Good Thing.